Welcome to another special edition of the Celtics Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Tennisby, joined as always by Alex Goldberg and Dr. Justin Quinn. Today, we are very excited to welcome in Matt Sullivan. Matt has just written a book called Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow, which should be available to you on today, uh, June 22nd. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm doing great. Yeah, Matt, you have been <laughs> burning the candle on both ends, uh, telling people about your book, so we're really thankful to have you. And this is the Celtics podcast, and one of those future stars of the Brooklyn Nets is Kyrie Irving, so we're going to actually look look back at the past, and uh, maybe you can shine some light on some of the things that maybe Celtics fans don't understand about what happened with Kyrie in Boston. So. Let's do exactly that. And of course, we'll look forward. The book is a forward-facing book. Um, and we, we're really interested in what the Nets are up to, what the Celtics are up to, kind of how NBA players, I mean, across the country are kind of grappling with their stardom, with their place in our, these moments of racial reckoning and everything in between. So we will look forward. But first, we've got to talk about the breakup. So uh, we want to preface this by saying uh, on this podcast, you know, we're pretty understanding of Kyrie Irving, but if we have any snarky Celtics fans, um, just keep an open mind. Cause Matt, based on what I can understand about the book, there's some really humanizing pieces of Kyrie's story of Durant's story and how they kind of came together. So first, actually, let me do this. Give us your elevator pitch for the book. Again, it's called can't knock the hustle inside the season of protest with the Brooklyn Nets superstars of tomorrow. Give us your elevator pitch and how you decided to write this story. Well, I think I was always in it to go beyond the game, right? I, as I told Kevin Durant, as I told Kyrie, you know, I, no offense, but I'm not that interested in your guys' stuff on the court, which has been really well documented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this book is not only about tracing the Nets off the court through what I stumbled into, which was a historic year, but really every chapter flashes back and forth uh, over the last decade and how far mm-hmm. we've come since the decision, not just in terms of its repercussions on basketball, but on, you know, race, politics, health, fashion, fame, fandom, social media, you name it. And I came to it basically because my old uh, mentor and editor-in-chief at, at Esquire magazine, David Granger, uh, I used to work there when I was, you know, in my early 20s, went on to work at the Atlantic, New York Times, The Guardian, Bleacher Report, all sorts of places. But he emailed me one day, he's a literary agent now, and he said, somebody should write a book. That was the subject (laughs) line, dot, dot, dot. And I said, about the Nets starting today. You know, new owner, is Kyrie crazy? You know, KD on the the comeback. Um, And he said, who's the best writer you know in Brooklyn who could write it? And I'd always been an editor. And then I was walking down the street walking my dog, and I ran into my neighbor and fellow Dookie, Jay Williams, and we just got to talking. He's obviously had his kind of on-again, off-again friendship with, with Durant. But, you know, he said, man, this team's got a lot of characters. There's so much more that hasn't been out there. And these guys, you know, have been so uh, misrepresented in the media that someone like you, like a real journalist, not just a, a sports nerd, no offense, we're, we're all kind of sports <laughs> nerds, um, you know, could really do right by these guys. Um, and so I, I went in and took an unvarnished look. You know, the Nets let me in for a year. I don't think they really wanted to. I kind of made them. And, you know, I I think it's an unapologetically fair book um, to these superstars, to the world, um, and and to these Nets who've had a really historic last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you brought up the decision because there's so much about trying to understand and pathologize Kyrie Irving, which in and of itself is a ridiculous thing that we do is, fans and media members, but I can't understand Kyrie without understanding LeBron. Uh, and I don't, I suspect that's really important for the book, but I know that the book is much more about the, the people that Kyrie and Durant are trying to become, not the people that led them there. Um, so let's, let's start back in Boston before we look ahead and let's look at Kai's time as a Celtic and I'm going to ask you, you tell a story in the book about a meeting that Kyrie and Durant had at Kyrie's suburban home in Boston uh, in the winter, I think it's 2018-19. And without giving any spoilers, can you kind of walk us through that that meeting and 
how Kyrie goes from telling season ticket holders, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking around in Boston if you let me, to I need to go to Brooklyn with Kevin Durant. Because it seems like there's a, a window of just a few weeks where things change pretty rapidly. You know, if I can rewind even further, I, I think it's sure. more like a window of a couple of months. So you got the summer of 18, and Kai's recovering from that bad knee injury. He goes to Vegas with KD and their entourage. It's just kind of his friends. And then he heads to Seattle to rehab over the summer, especially at these kind of secret pickup games with guys like Zach Levine. The whole thing's kind of organized in Jamal Crawford's kind of crappy little gym. And then one day, who shows up in the bleachers with a cane and a Celtics hat but Bill Russell? And he just wow. kind of watches these guys doing these 125-point runs. And then afterward, you know, these, these all-stars would, would pull up. Jamal Murray was there, other guys. Uh, almost campfire style with real bleacher seats around the bleachers. And Mr. Russell, shall we say, um, would tell a couple stories for a few minutes and then everybody would go home and come back the next day. He'd show up again sit by the bleachers. Mm-hmm. And they'd sit around and talk for a half hour, an hour. And then he'd be talking about, you know, real-life stuff like – freedom rides in the 60s, what have you. And then what I understand, what I reported, Kyrie and, and Mr. Russell would, would break off alone and, and talk Celtics. And it was around this time, you know, according to, to Kyrie's friend who lived with him and stayed with him in Seattle that summer, um, he said, quote, it, it was like this power shift going on in Boston, you know, basically as Jalen and Jason kind of showed out while Kai was, was mm-hmm. down in those playoffs. Um, Quote, and then he also realized, wait a minute, I'm trying to champion Boston, but now that I'm looking at the history of Boston, is this a city that I want to champion in terms of racial history and stuff like that? Is Boston the type of place I want to represent? So we can get into some of that race stuff in a second. But but anyway, so Kai goes from there to the Standing Rock Reservation where he kind of sets his spirits straight with his Sioux roots. Let's just say Kyrie has been direct messaging me on Instagram with like 67 page Supreme court decisions on indigenous <laughs> land rights, but we can get to that later too. Um, anyway, Kai promises the fans up there in Boston, they'll sign the extension. And then his grandfather dies. Right. He'd had this whole spiritual connection with his family, his mom, and then the grandfather dies. So, so that he would end up telling KD is when quote, anything I was doing in basketball, I didn't really care. And so like that kind of poof, he's done with Boston. And then, yeah, I've got this kind of, uh, you know, previous reported scene in my book, at, at, I mentioned up there in Weston, um, KD kind of comes in, this is January 25th, 2019, the Warriors are about to play the Celtics on national TV, dinner at Kyrie's house, you know, wine's flowing, vegan burgers, vegan smoothies, they're playing 2K <laughs> themselves, and, and it just kind of, from that moment on, they, they started to be all in on the nets and the idea that they could control that franchise um, more than they could kind of walk into existing ones. Um, in Golden State and, and Boston. So, you know, KD was kind of over it with Golden State, and he basically mm-hmm. decided to go to Brooklyn while he was playing in the finals for them. So these guys were on a path, on a, on a collision path, you know, and, and leaving a lot of uh, explosive material behind them. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we've talked about on this podcast the brief hits of racism in Boston in the 20th, 21st century, and I think Kyrie is really spot on. I mean, what 20 something isn't walking around with their eyes wide open, especially in the past few years. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit and then we'll probably go back closer to when he truly does leave Boston. But can you tell us about Kyrie's relationship with Tatum and Brown? Because it seems like it was a flashpoint to this breakup, but also to this day, it remains really strong. Can you tell us anything about what you know about Kyrie's impact on the young Celtics a few years ago and uh, to this day, if you have insight on that. I think he's tight with Jason, you know, Duke brotherhood, as I know, sticks together. Um, You know, he and Jalen seems like it's a, you know, a real issue of not seeing eye to eye with, with Kyrie's somewhat well-documented, but I would say I I, I confirmed his um, behavior where he's um, in and out, right. And he'll be in a good mood and he'll be locked in and he'll be a great leader. And, you know, he's been very forthcoming about, his, about mental health, about um, issues of depression on mm-hmm. untreated ones, um, specifically in reference to Boston, to his grandfather. And, you know, players dating back to his Cleveland days, to his Boston days, to his Brooklyn days, um, including guys like Amon Shumpert, who were in two places, guys like Marcus Smart, who's still boys with Kai. Um, you know, let's say people have different ways of dealing with, with things. And if they want to take a day off, it's their day job. If they want to take a couple of days off, 
who's to stop them when they're that talented and, and bringing that much for their job. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that might have brought Kyrie down, might have, might have made some difficult relationships in Boston, but I think he's really um, propped himself up in that regard and, and, and owned it and said, you know, this is a job and I am a man. And, and you know, he's really delineated the difference between entertainment and, and real life, as I think he uh, wrote in one of his many manifestos. Um, that one, I think, after a couple of fans up there were calling him a coward when he didn't show up. <laughs> because he was hurt um, to the new Nets kind of first return to TD Garden. Um, just a quick follow-up on that, Matt. So Kyrie Irving and mental health seems like a conversation that is almost always happening at some point during the season, and it happens pretty reliably. Uh, and I wonder if you could shed light on, uh, given that you have kind of been embedded with Brooklyn for this amount of time, I, I guess the question I'm really asking is, is Kyrie doing any better in Brooklyn with regard to this? Does he seem to be kind of in a better place mentally now that he's closer to home now that he uh is teamed up with kevin durant and uh you know his friends and uh seems it it seems like he really picked brooklyn and that's kind of the first time that that's happened in his career that he's really gotten to pick where he's been so uh has has this helped for sure i mean i'm not here to psychoanalyze him i i I told him I, i wouldn't do that um but there's a whole chapter in my book based around that first um confrontation with Boston while he was on the Nets, the whole post about life, right? And capital letters. And, and that goes Mm -hmm. into larger issues of of mental health and, and Kyrie's struggles with that. Um, Going back to Cleveland and kind of finding himself and finding veganism and meditation and all these stuff that um, we pile on him for. But yeah, I I think you're, you're totally right. Um, He, he is in control of his situation in Brooklyn. And importantly, as I think some of the quote unquote smart franchises have done, is they become malleable to him. And, and I think he knew that that was the promise that GM Sean Marks in Brooklyn made to him. It, it wasn't fancy training facilities or marketability. It was, you know, we'll let Kai be Kai. In fact, that's kind of been uh, Steve Nash's uh, kind of secret motto since he's mm-hmm. been in Brooklyn is quote, protect the group. Right. And I, I think that's a bit of insulating KD calls it nets world. Um, <laughs> but it's been an interesting dynamic and in that these guys have been able to bounce up against the walls. Now I'm not sure how happy that makes management at the end of the day when Kyrie goes on a break, which from what I understand is, was, was back in January is kind of pseudo paternity leave that would had to do with some real world incidents like the Capitol riot and what have you. And then, you know, he got caught in that kind of maskless birthday party. I don't think that's making anybody necessarily happy in Brooklyn, except for Kyrie, if that makes sense. No, I think that makes total sense. And not to make this about LeBron, we've learned that this is kind of the new way of doing business with LeBron in Miami and the later in Cleveland. Matt, I agree with you. I'm much more interested in the off the court stuff and in a second, I want to ask you about your perception of Kyrie Irving and Durant and Harden, if, if you have insight, going from people who are involved in their communities to perhaps being activists or even leaders and what that progression has looked like. But before we get there, give me your 30-second spiel. As someone who perhaps has a window into Kyrie's life better than most, what did you think of the stupid logo thing? And I'll just tell you straight up, I thought it was a corny thing to do, and I thought the response was even cornier. I asked around about it. I don't think anybody in his inner circle thought it was meant to be demeaning, just kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. I mean, look, Bill Russell said it himself back in the day, right? I thought of myself as playing for the Celtics, not for Boston. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think he said something like, the fans could do and think whatever they wanted. If they like what they saw, fine. If not, the hell with it. And, And I think that's something that Kyrie holds dear or similar sentiment. I'm not sure it's animosity toward the Celtics. I think he has an issue with Boston. Right. And we don't have enough time to unpack that one because there are people who have spilled a lot more ink than we four collectively to try to figure that out. And I don't think anyone has. Uh, Apologies to anyone hearing a wild echo or Wi-Fi delays. I'm in the middle of a move, so just wanted to get that out of the way. So, okay, forget the logo thing. I think it was just a silly, silly thing in the first place. But what I don't think is silly is 
seen Kyrie Irving grow as a human being. Um, I've met him once fleetingly way back in the day covering uh, the Celtics beat. So I can't pretend to know him. And I don't think you, Matt, would say that you know him as a person. But I want to ask you about his evolution, again, from someone who is concerned with their community to someone who is perhaps a great leader. Uh, He has, in his own right, helped lead uh, informational campaigns about Native American plight in the United States, uh, Black Americans' plight in the United States. He is a leader to the players. I mean, there was a small moment where he was really maligned for no good reason, in my opinion, for saying, hey, wait, maybe the bubble is a bad idea. The disruptor. The disruptor, exactly. I mean, that was part of my French, Justin, some grade-A bullshit uh, on the behalf of ESPN, not on the behalf of Kyrie. Uh, So, yeah, Matt, what is your sense of where Kyrie is at in his journey as a a leader or perhaps an activist? And I think you said on the Hoopsology podcast uh, the other day, a friend of our podcast, that maybe Kyrie will just walk into the mountain someday and that will be that. So what are you seeing from this? Not to, again, not to pathologize him, but go ahead, pathologize him. What's your person arc for Kyrie right now look like? Well, we all know he's a heady dude, right? And, and mm-hmm. the, you know, back to the flat earther thing, he's willing to provoke even when he's just kind of curious and reading his um, very heady history books. I mean, the guy reads like a lot, sometimes more than he looks at tape. So I think he's always had this grand vision, maybe even a delusion of grandeur at some point to be what he calls a way maker. Uh, a, a, not just a thought leader, but a difference maker. And I think, as you said, he's been very good with awareness uh, of certain issues. I think he's dipped his toe into advocacy, but really in terms of humanitarian acts, just kind of random acts of kindness, if you will, where he'll pay off mm-hmm. a medical bill for a kid who went to his high school, or he'll pay off most of the tuition for his high school. Or mm-hmm. just, I, I heard a story from someone in his inner circle the other day where kid in California was a victim of of gun violence and the doctor called up Kyrie's people saying this kid you know Kyrie's a hero to him and so Kyrie's buying the kid a house that's disability friendly sort of like he put a down payment on a house for the family of George Floyd Mm -hmm. and speaking of George Floyd I I do think last summer almost just being home alone with his thoughts and his future in front of him Mm -hmm. in isolation um, and, you know, later find out, you know, having a son on the way um, really made him reconsider things. And Breonna Taylor, he was obviously very outspoken about, had a connection. He, he seems um, like really a feminist and pushing for women's causes, WNBA. WNBA thing came because he was asking questions, because he was prodding. You know, it's not the same right. thing flat earth thing, but he's evolved to try to become an activist. That's an education in activism. I think Kyrie's um, family member was describing to me just the other day, how he's, oh no, I'm sorry, it was, it was the activist Sean King was describing this to me, that mm-hmm. Kyrie is you know, old-ish for his career. He's on the quote-unquote back half of his career, but he's very young as a man. And so, sure. so last summer when he had that you know, kind of uh, bubble boycotter call, he really was just kind of talking about unity. He was talking about second-guessing, prodding, questioning the man kind of a thing. Like, why are we making, you know, recoup billions for the NBA and Disney mm-hmm. and ESPN when we could be fighting for change. But at the same time, it's kind of a vague message, right? We need unity. And so I think that's been his problem. He hasn't been that clear. I think as he grows older as a man and figures out his priorities, he's really becoming more clear, doing more work with his foundation out in the open and um, you know, telling everybody what kind of leader of men or way maker he is rather than just this petty guy who leaves himself open to misinterpretation by the NBA media. Yeah, it's such a annoying thing to hold Kyrie to perfection when the intentions are so good. And by and large, to your point, the things that he's doing that tangibly make a difference in people's lives are truly incredible. Uh, so I'm super pumped to read your book just to kind of learn about that side of Kyrie. I think, but it's not just him, right? I mean, I think sure. last summer was a movement and, and a real, not just reckoning for the world, but for celebrities. And like Jalen Brown, man, 
he gets a big passage in my book, you know, even maybe more than Kyrie when it, when it came to that um, summer of protests. I mean, Guy was driving through the middle of the night to lead a protest in Atlanta. And you talk to the guys who were at that um, protest with them, players, rappers, um, the guy has it in him. I mean, a big search for me in this book was what is authenticity? What is influence? And sure, Jalen's out here on Instagram Live, you know, but there was something that felt real about that. And I, I think he has become someone who everyone points to when I'm asking, like, who are the real ones here? You know, yeah. who are the, I think it's just a bridge too far maybe for me to call him at least Kaepernick of the NBA. But, you know, Jalen, when he went to, to Berkeley, he studied under the same professor who, who Colin Kaepernick did when he was becoming kind of more activated politically. And from what I understand, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't go too far in, in assuming this, but let's just say if Jalen wasn't on a rookie deal when Trump went after Kaepernick and the Warriors and everybody was taking a knee and nobody in the NBA did, I think Jalen probably would have done that if he yeah. had had his contract extension by then. And you, you've noticed, you know, since he signed that deal, and it's, it's sad that money talks in this situation because you know guys like Jalen are realer than that. Um, but once they've got kind of the breathing room to do that, or breathing is the right word, once they've got the, the, the muscle, the flexibility to do that, um, guys like him will go there. And I hope more young guys are, are activated to follow in, in Jalen's footsteps and really call for change and, and not just tweeting and, and Instagram living because you know, these guys are trying to figure out how to not just call out bullshit, but how to do something about it. And I think that's the next step in the evolution. If the real ones and the kind of suits can agree. Just a quick follow-up on that, Matt. You know, I'm, I'm one of the things as a Celtics fan that I'm really fascinated about uh, and looking forward to kind of encountering more about in the book is um, the relationship specifically between Jalen and Kyrie, because I think that's a really important inflection point. And I guess I wonder if you could get into, without uh, spoiling too much for the audience, a little bit of kind of why they might have butted heads a little bit. Was it on the court stuff, off the court stuff, a little bit of in between? Kind of what what happened there? Because it seems to me, as an outsider, that uh, you know while Jalen and Kyrie might have butted heads, they actually have a lot more in common than uh, I think a lot of us uh, would kind of assume knowing that they uh, had butted heads. So I wonder if you could shed some light on that. Yeah, I think it's purely basketball stuff, man. Uh, I, I think there's two headstrong guys in, in a locker room, and that's just classic NBA locker room stuff with, with some of the um, Kyrie peccadillos we, we described. They are both growing as men. I mean, Jalen is really young, and these guys are finding themselves off the court, and I think they're finding themselves with the freedom and security to be freedom fighters, to be truth seekers, um, to be liberators in a way that your more mainstream athletes, your LeBrons, are not. It mm -hmm. helps when you have Nike money. It helps when you don't have to worry about blowback, right? It's like... LeBron probably could have said anything he wanted to when the Nets and the Lakers were in China over that whole Daryl Morey mm -hmm. freedom for Hong Kong, you know, but he didn't. And he claimed he's not educated enough. And I think what bonds Jalen and Kyrie, even if they're not texting each other every night is that they are willing to go there and that right. they are not held back by um, education because they're always educating themselves. They're always reading like, Black Panther history, not um, safe stuff, not talking points from their people. Uh, their people are small teams. And I think it's cool when, when you know, entrepreneurs, activists, athletes just kind of keep their circle really tight and do what they want to do, not what uh, looks good for the cloud. Yeah, and this summer was, for anyone who kind of tuned into it, it was so fascinating to see institutionalists like LeBron or maybe Chris Paul, who said, let's bring about change in the following ways versus people like Kyrie or Jalen Brown. I don't think ESPN meant it to be a compliment, but being a disruptor, given the circumstances, might have been a very high compliment. Uh, I think it's so fascinating, and everyone is entitled to their worldview, obviously, to see the different flavors of activism going on in the NBA. Uh, and Matt, I want to ask you about that based on what you've come to learn about 
Kyrie and the type of person he's trying to be in the world. Um, Durant and Harden in their own right are incredibly charitable, incredibly uh, connected to their communities. What did you learn about how the NBA deals with players seeking to make a change? Do you, did you find yourself excited by what the association is up to? Did you find yourself frustrated or is it something too complicated to sum up in one word? Yeah, I've got an excerpt and a new feature coming out a little later this week that will shed, shall we say, a lot more light on all of this. But I think the short version is that the NBA would much rather have Kevin Durant donating a lot of money through his sponsors rather than tweeting anything controversial. That's not to say that the (laughs) NBA and Adam Silver don't support guys who are outspoken. I think there's just a bit of uh, different pathways here, right? Like Chris Paul and LeBron were like LeBron was ready to walk out on the season when the Bucks went on strike. And it took Obama getting on the phone with him to be like, here's some solutions. And then, and then LeBron woke up on the right side of it, right? That's the, the mass corporate influencer way to go about it. Meanwhile, a lot of the players in the bubble on that crazy chaotic night when the sports world shut down, like basically across the world, a lot of people I talked to were saying that night and going forward, Kyrie was right all along. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where it's not a schism. It's not a divide. It's just different ways of going about things. It's, it's the more individual path and maybe more progressive path. And then there's kind of this, uh, the allegedly progressive path that the NBA, which is very much a corporate, you know, billions of dollar enterprise that has interests to protect and an image to project. You know, it, it's, it's going to be a difficult path to progress. We'll see where it's really going. I think, you know, my book leaves off at, at the moment when Obama kind of saves the day and, you know, the election comes through and the, James Harden's playing secret pickup on election day at Kobe, Kobe's old gym with Chris Paul and KD and, and Kyrie. And, and so all these things were kind of coming together in such a swirl. And then COVID made it so difficult this season for activism to turn into action. But I think it's going to be this season and then back into the, you know, whatever new normal we're all entering without Trump um, helps. Um, we'll see, you know, if anything can, can really get done that brings these folks together. Well, I, I liked leaving it on a future-facing note, uh, so I won't ask you any big-picture questions from here, but I have a few things that I can't help myself. The first is, I think you'll know more than I. I've always heard that there are whispers that Kevin Durant was instrumental with Gordon Hayward's free agency back in 2017. Uh, can you shine any light on that? Yeah, I I was amazed how Gordon was so open with me just chilling while he was hurt last year in the locker room. I, I think it's cause I told him that we look really similar and have the same like parted <laughs> hipster haircut. And I was asking him about, you know, KD and what he thought. And he's like, yeah, he actually gave me a lot of advice when I was thinking about free agency. And he said, quote, you don't owe anything to anyone. And I think that's what KD had been told by folks in the, in the past by, you know, people he looked up to. I, I don't know if they said this exactly to him, but he would be talking to Harden when he was thinking about going to the Warriors. He was talking to Steve Nash when he was thinking about going to the Warriors. You know, Andre Iguodala was in his ears a lot when he was thinking about going to Brooklyn. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, some of that passed down wisdom of superstars um, to the next generation of superstars is what these guys really want, you know, the real player empowerment to be, if you will. It's not just commanding franchises and and getting you know ogs on on cheap deals to come help you ring chase it's about making sure that the kind of individualism of celebrity power and celebrity rights you know black rights celebrity rights influencer rights um is preserved and so even if that's kind of the unlikely combination of of kd and gordon hayward um I think it's interesting that, that that is passed down no matter what, you know, team or rival or friends you're, you're talking about. So Matt, I know that you're more focused on the stuff off the court and I, I truly want to thank you for your time. This has been much more interesting than breaking down draft prospects or <laughs> uh, small ball matchups. And I'll plug your book one more time. I'm certainly going to pick up a copy. It's called Can't Knock the Hustle. Inside the Season of Protest with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow, a HarperCollins joint, and it's out today, the day that we're recording, June 22nd. So we'll get you out of here on this. 
Kyrie Irving has a player option for 22-23. Kevin Durant has a player option for 22-23. And James Harden has a player option for 22-23. Do you think that the Brooklyn Nets win a championship in, let's say, the next five years? And is it with that big three? Let me give you guys a little news. I'm not sure this has been out there. Um, I've heard Nets ownership was quite upset with Kyrie's quote pause, especially that maskless party that turned his pseudo paternity leave into more like a COVID suspension. And in the last week, I've heard rumblings, whispers really since cracking the nets is kind of like breaking into the Kremlin that Brooklyn GM, Sean Marks would maybe possibly apparently be willing to at least listen to a trade offer for Kyrie this off season. Now, I'm not sure what the market for Kyrie is at this point. It's not like, you know, Ben Simmons giving you a headache on the court. It's that complex personality that comes from off the court. I I think it's been annoying some people in the franchise. I I can't speak to his teammates who obviously want to play with with one of the world's best and get him back there. Sean Marks was asked um, this week about extensions for the big three he kind of can't talk about that and milwaukee's executives right. got in trouble when they said they were going to offer Giannis a max deal of course they're going to throw all the money at the world at them josai is is richer than rich and mm-hmm. so the nets will try to try to make it work i think they just need to make Kyrie work first i that's the best answer you could have possibly given that's way juicier than yes absolutely they will win a championship Matt Sullivan is the author of a new book. It's called Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest with Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Matt, thanks so much for coming on Celtics Lab, and hopefully you write another book and we get to bring you back. Yeah, I hope this one isn't too much of a hate read. I, I swear I'm a Knicks fan, and, and readers will really get to know players across the league. You know, Jalen, as he drives through the night from, from Boston to lead that protest in Atlanta. Marcus, as he deals with Kyrie, but also the bubble, plus LeBron. Jay-Z back here in Brooklyn, and just that whole idea of player empowerment, celebrity empowerment, fan empowerment through social and beyond. I, I think it's a read for everybody outside of Brooklyn as much as back here. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks again to Matt Sullivan, the award-winning editor at Bleacher Report and the writer of a new book, uh, Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Justin and Alex are still on the horn, and we're just going to kind of talk about the Celtics now. And Justin, you sat in on Brad Stevens' recent press conference, I guess his first solo press conference as the president of basketball operations. So Justin, can you tell us kind of what you learned or didn't learn from this press conference for anyone who might have missed it? Sure, and apologies if there's any uh, of my own distinct flavor of noise. We have a big hailstorm going on, so you didn't hear me chime in until just now. It's pretty noisy. Uh, Unlike Brad Stevens, who is evidently uh, a master of saying very little while saying a lot, uh, I learned that he really valued contract flexibility uh, in terms of, or excuse me, cap flexibility in terms of the contracts he has on the roster. That was one of the reasons, the main reasons that they moved on from having Kemba Walker. Uh, It's not clear when they're planning on doing something, but I think the, the idea that was being conveyed rather subtly was that they want to be able to be ready to, to do any kind of a major move, to have all of their, their uh, stepping rule-governed draft picks available so that way you can do a pick every other year for the mm-hmm. CBA. They, they have this rule in place, if you're not familiar. Basically named after a Cleveland GM who did trade away all of his <laughs> draft picks. Um, so that's, that's, that's a great little history point uh, for you. But um, now the Celtics can trade away four up to 2028. As soon as the draft happens, they are, they're able to do that. Uh, they have a much more friendly contract in Al Horford, though from the sound of things, he, he really did sound excited to have Al back. Uh, his perimeter uh, threat in terms of offense, his defense, his passing. Um, but I'm also sure that that um, 14.5 guaranteed uh, million at the end of the contract as Mm -hmm. compared to what he had to deal with um, as much as he loved Kemba, which he made very clear. uh, It seemed like he's pretty happy with with the returns from this deal. And 
I don't think there's really any debate that he's going to have trouble moving on from people he likes. No, I think he'll subscribe to the Danny Ainge school of thought. And to your point, it wasn't said in the press conference. I don't think Al Horford would have been posting so much about Boston if he didn't have the sense that he's sticking around at least for a little bit. Uh, Absolutely. Alex, uh, what are your thoughts on the Kemba Brad Stevens relationship? Because I've heard reported elsewhere that Kemba didn't rehab his knee as well as he might've. And that was a, a strain in the relationship. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm seeing Jared Weiss has been dropping a lot of stuff over on the athletic about, um, kind of the relationship between Kemba and uh, both Brad and the rest of the Celtics locker room. And it's interesting. It seems like um, there was definitely some, if Weiss's reporting is to be believed, there was definitely some tension that it wasn't all sunshine and roses uh, for Kemba Walker last year. uh, And that uh, the injury took a toll on him, that uh, apparently there was some, some tension in the locker room. Uh, between Kemba and Brad and maybe some other players. Uh, I don't want to get too far into that. But, you know, it it doesn't surprise me that um, Kemba ultimately was the kind of piece that would be, you know, in in previous pods I've suggested that it was highly likely that Kemba was going to get moved this offseason, and I'm not terribly shocked. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, one of the benefits of bringing in Al Horford, uh, a guy that, you know, you kind of just mentioned, seems like he's going to be here for a little bit at the very least, is that Al is a known quantity as far as culture and the locker room fit are concerned. There has basically never really been a situation where Al Horford has been described as a bad locker room presence Um, and Hawks fans might be still a little pissed at him for leaving in free agency, but by all accounts, Horford was loved while he was there. Um, You know, even in Philly, like Al Horford, the basketball fit was not necessarily great, but Al Horford, the personality and locker room fit, I mean, it seemed, no, no, I didn't really hear much people saying like bad stuff about uh, Al Horford. And, you know, he was a consummate professional in OKC. And I think... Al, Al is a known quantity for Brad Stevens. Al has worked with Brad, um, and Brad knows what he's getting, even if it's maybe not physically the same player that he was a couple of years ago. And I think that, to kind of your point initially about clearing up salary flexibility, that's the main reason that this trade happened. But the second most important reason that this trade happened is because um, the Celtics locker room was not a happy place last year. There was some bad juju going on. And a lot of it was the result of the fact that Celtics had a really rough season from injuries and COVID and whatnot. But there were, there were clearly some chemistry issues there as well. And Horford coming in as a veteran stabilizer who can reset the culture and kind of bring it back, hopefully, to something closer to what it was when the Celtics made some of those deep runs in Horford's tenure, uh, I think is a really valuable thing to have for a team that has to be now focused less on contending for a title and more on building the infrastructure uh, into place so that they will have that shot in the near future. Yeah, I said it before, uh, and again, apologies for the echo. It's it's really jarring on my end. I can't imagine what it sounds like for anyone who's listening to it. Uh, I I think that the Celtics are all in on 2022. I think that having Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown puts Boston in a better position than 90% of the rest of the league, but to really be able to format the roster in a way that makes functional sense go ask the Sixers if you need a roster that makes sense I think it'll take a little bit of time so I'm not I'm pretty I think everyone here is pretty pleased unfortunately on the I mean sorry Kemba but I think we're pleased with the trade Uh, but I don't know that we think next season is necessarily a season where the Celtics will contend although they do have Justin, to your point, the flexibility to perhaps big game hunt as soon as right after the draft. Uh, Before that, they probably should find a coach. And recently, uh, Woj reported 
that Boston had second inter- second round interviews with Ime Adoka, who's an assistant with Brooklyn, with Darvin Ham, who's an assistant with uh, the Bucks, and Chauncey Billups, who is an assistant with the Clippers, who is the top choice of our friend Cedric Maxwell, but comes with a considerable amount of baggage, we have decided. So, Justin and Alex, what are your thoughts on this report? Do you think it will be one of those three people, or do you think that this is uh, a premature report, Alex? Um, I have heard a lot of stuff suggesting that Ime Udoka made a really good impression on the Celtics brass, and I, for one, would be absolutely thrilled to, for him to be the hire. Uh, Udoka has had a long career as an assistant coach under Greg Popovich for the Spurs and also now in Brooklyn uh, and has, I think, gleaned a lot of knowledge in his time as an assistant on how to run an NBA offense and in particular how to run a modern NBA offense, something that involves, you know, a lot of dribble penetration, kicking out to shooters, five out lineups, kind of the beautiful game uh, that both the Spurs and to a degree the Nets uh, tried to run this year. So if we're looking for a modern offensive team uh, and a kind of a young, exciting coach who can bring some of that energy uh, and who can, I think, bond with Jason and Jalen on that level, both being all kind of on the same page as far as like young, but working on it. Um, I, I think Udoka would be an incredible fit. And I'm really excited to hear that the Celtics brass have think so highly of him. I want to, I want to piggyback on that as well too, because he actually also was an assistant, I believe with team USA where reporting that's circulating now uh, suggests that he actually bonded really well with Jalen and Jason when they were part of team USA, which, you know, is kind of a priority moving forward. And in regards to that baggage, um, you know, regardless of what the front office makes in terms of a decision, it's just, do we really want to have to be dealing with the, the whispers? You know, is this, is this going to, you know, I, I'm leaning into this just a little bit because I, I want to make sure that these, these narratives don't disappear under the right. weight of, of excitement and novelty and all that, there is going to be a significant portion of the fan base that every time they, they, they have to hear a press conference, will be thinking about things other than basketball. And I, I'm not saying that if you have those kinds of things in your past, that you should be a pariah necessarily, but there's, there's a way where one makes, um, makes it known that you have made mistakes in the past or even the appearance of mistakes by showing some contrition, some kind of activism, some kind of change. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be present. Right. That's all I'm going to say about that. I don't want to belabor the point. Um, I just really hope that when they do their due diligence, that they also take into um, account optics and what they will have to do to shift those optics, optics if they do decide to go in the direction of one Chauncey Billups. Yeah, for anyone who is unaware, uh, there are some things in Chauncey's past that he is alleged to have been a part of related to sexual violence uh, that we are not the people to pledge judge and jury here, nor are we the people to cast him as a pariah. But I think, Justin, your point that it's not necessarily fan, fair to fans for whom that would be a really difficult signing. So... I hope that the Celtics organization, uh, to Matt's point, who employs one of the most forward-thinking players in the league, I hope that they're holistically thinking through these things. Uh, And Alex, I think Udoka's background as a Spurs coach is really fascinating because the Celtics won't have a traditional point guard next year, or at least not right now. And kind of playing five out or four and a half out, depending on what the rotation looks like, I think... Tatum is increasingly a playmaker. Horford is increasingly a playmaker. I'm, I think that Marcus Smart can play well as chief point guard when he doesn't have to worry about getting his shots and his touches. But a Spursian offense would be pretty cool. So I'm pretty interested in Udoka as a hire. Uh, 
Interestingly, a name that has not been tied to the Celtics, among other names, most names in the world have not been tied to the Celtics, but one name in particular is Rick Carlisle. He has not been tied to the Celtics, and Justin is emphatically giving me double thumbs down, so I'll go to you, Justin. Uh, Why did Rick earn not one but two thumbs down? Well, you know, initially I was very high on Rick, and some of this may be a mirror of what we are seeing with Kemba, but the reporting that's coming out of The Athletic regarding his tenure, um, coupled with, you know, the the very well-known issue that he does not look like the kind of coach that, you know, two very important people in Celtics organization have made it clear um, they would like. I, I think that when you combine that, the, the fact that Carlisle has been rumored to have been a very difficult person to deal with, and, you know, perhaps it's just because he's demanding, and maybe they do need that, but if they do get that, I think they need to get it from a voice that they're going to listen to. And as, as excited as I was about his technical chops as a coach, um, I don't think that he is, is the right coach. But the double thumbs, that's just one thumb. The double thumbs, looks, I thought you were going to talk about Becky Hammond. She has not been in for a single interview with the Boston Celtics. She is about to go in for her second interview with the Portland Trailblazers. And for whatever reason, maybe she's just not interested. You know, maybe there's things we'll find out later. Uh, there, there is a very strange disconnect, particularly given the history of the Celtics that, you know, we've, we've talked about quite a bit before um, in terms of being no, no pun intended trailblazers. Uh, okay. Maybe a tiny pun intended. It just, it's surprising to me that she hasn't even been granted an interview yet. And I'm, I'm really curious to see if there's some kind of a story there. I guess we'll probably find out at some point in the future, but you know, it's really a shame to me that, you know, I understand why, for example, Carl Lawson is not mm-hmm. necessarily being included because, you know, for one thing, you have to maintain complete radio silence as they did with, with Brad when you're trying to convince a college coach to jump ship like that because recruiting is, you know, kind of a major issue for them. And, you know, Kara is still in the middle of her first season in terms of games played. I mean, she did technically have a season, but she had to shut it down early with, with the Duke women's basketball program. And I kind of feel like those things together make her not an ideal candidate just from her own uh, professionalism. I don't think right. I don't think she's ready to leave that position yet. But as far as Becky, I'm just utterly clueless why there isn't a stronger connection here. Yeah, truly, I, I, I wrote for Celtics Hub as such. I didn't think Carol Lawson or Becky would leave their positions uh, because they were in great positions. I'm I'm pretty shocked. I'm actually on her Wikipedia page right now, trying to find a connection to Portland. I can't find one. She. Grew up in South Dakota. She went to school in Colorado. She played uh, for the Russian national team. I didn't know that. Um, But to your point, I mean, I just said as such, I think someone who has Spurs DNA would be great for the Celtics team. And Becky Hammond arguably is more qualified than Ime Odoka. Uh, I don't know why her name didn't show up in the Boston reports, but not every, every name can, I suppose. Uh, speaking of national basketball, um, we have a couple of Celtics players who are going to play in the upcoming Olympics, whether or not they ought to. Jason Tatum is going to play for Team USA, and Evan Fournier is going to play for uh, his native France. And Tristan Thompson is not playing for Canada, but he has been in the news for all sorts of reasons, so he might be on the sidelines interpersonally this summer. Uh, any thoughts on the Olympics? Um, you know, we've talked a lot on this pod about how the Celtics are positioning themselves for future pre-agencies. And I think the Olympics is a really big part of that. So I am actually quite pleased that Jason Tatum is going to be representing the United States uh, on the USA basketball team, because that means that Jason Tatum is going to be hanging out with a lot of potentially available free agent stars who he could have, I'm sure, all sorts of fun conversations with. See, the thing about recruiting, though, is, you know, you can recruit, but you can be recruited at the same time. And, you know, I think, as I do to a certain extent with the situation in Dallas, 
that some saltiness on the way out the door from certain sources may be involved in the particular casting of the Celtics organization, or at least the severity thereof. Mm-hmm. But just in case, I don't know how comfortable I am with this, this whole idea of him there, particularly considering the season that he just went through and the whole team went through in terms of just basically almost a whole solid year of basketball, you know, with like a 90 day break. It's pretty, makes me a little, little nervous. I mean, I know he's young. Uh, he does soak up things around him like a sponge. I'm hoping that he comes back with some nice new tricks but mm-hmm. I, I'm not entirely comfortable with, with this thing. It's his decision to make. I don't want to be paternalistic and be like, you shouldn't go. But, I mean, it does worry me. So uh, we could talk about Ben Simmons. We could talk about Trey Young. Forget that. We're going to close with a homework assignment for any listener who lives in Weston. Jason Tatum just bought a house in Weston. Deuce Tatum is probably going to go to preschool in Weston. If you are a young parent or the child around the age of Deuce Tatum, preschool, kindergarten. You need to have your kid befriend Deuce Tatum. And you need to make sure that Deuce has really strong friendships in preschool and elementary school, such that he says, listen, uh, Jason, I'm sure they're on a first name basis. You can't move me out of my kindergarten. I'm, I have too many friends. And that's how Jason Tatum will stay uh, Celtic. Because Justin, I think you're right. Man, how many endorsements can this dude pile on he's in every other commercial on tv right now he is built for the bright lights and unless he gets really happy and settled in the boston suburbs i don't know why he wouldn't seek out more star-studded pastures but that i suspect is a conversation for maybe next season's uh selfie club podcasts so on that hopeful bombshell to all the Western parents listening, thank you everyone for listening. Go ahead and like and subscribe if you haven't. We have t-shirts. You can go buy one for Deuce Tatum. And we will catch you next week.